And then it's kind of like going into a bar. Conversation is going on before you got there. You jump in, you listen for a little while, you chime in however you can, then you move to one table, right? And so there's another conversation that's going there. You may leave and come back. You just kind of enter into that space in some ways. Man, you and I have different experiences at bars. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking that too. Like, man, you are probably really good at bars. <laughs> yeah, you sound like a lot of fun. I'm the dude in the corner, not talking. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Bioethics for the People, an informal look at hot topics, controversies, and scholarship dealing with bioethics, medicine, technology, and anything else we're interested in. We're your hosts, Devin Stahl from Waco, Texas. And I'm Tyler Gibb from Kalamazoo, Michigan. And yes, that's a real place. So Devin, tell me about being a chaplain. So you you were a chaplain before you uh, went to grad school for bioethics. So what's it like being a chaplain? Yeah, so I went to seminary or divinity school, and it's actually pretty common for a lot of people who think they might want to be ordained as clergy to do a little chaplaincy work as part of that training. And there was a time when I thought maybe I wanted to be a pastor, so this was something I got into. I did a summer of it, and then I did a year of what we call CPE or clinical pastoral education. It is, it's really interesting. I actually found, um, somewhat surprisingly to me, that it was so much easier to be with people who were sick and dying than it was to be with people who were maybe not sick and dying. (laughs) (laughs) Just because there's such profound insight and people need such comfort during those times. There were times when I felt maybe, oh gosh, what could I possibly say to this person in the worst moment of his or her life? Like that's a tremendous pressure. But at the same time, people just want to hear something good, to have you listen to them. And it was such a luxury to be able to spend lots of time just sitting with people and hearing them tell me their story, tell me what was troubling them, or tell me something good about their life. As a clinical ethicist, I just don't think you get to have as much time with people because you're you're there to kind of do a job and you're trying to investigate what the ethical dilemma is. And I, I find that really rewarding, but I miss sitting with people for maybe an hour sometimes and just kind of hearing whatever it is they wanted to talk about. And whether they were religious or not, it didn't typically matter. I mean, there were some people who said, oh gosh, you're the chaplain. And they thought either they were dying and I was there to tell them, which is you you should never have the chaplain tell someone they're dying. That actually doesn't really happen. So if anyone thinks that if a chaplain comes into your hospital room, it's not because you're dying. Or they just thought, oh, I'm not very religious. I don't want to talk. But the truth is that I encountered many, many non-religious people who were happy to have me come and talk with them. I wasn't trying to push my religion on them. I really just was there to comfort them and support them in any way that they needed. And that was a really cool job. Yeah. I think the misconception is that you're there to like hear their last confession, right? Before they get whisked off the pearly gates, which really is not, like you said, that's not what chaplains do or anybody does as far as I know. Yeah, so there's a lot of misconceptions about what chaplains do. And sometimes I just have like a million stories from chaplaincy. But one that always sticks out in my mind is I had a woman who was quite ill and I came and she she immediately said, you're the chaplain, please pray for me. And I prayed for her. You know, one of the kind of prayers that I was used to saying, she was a Christian, so I prayed a Christian prayer that God would, you know, hear her and guide her physicians to help her. And she stopped me in the middle of the prayer and said, 
what kind of Christian are you? Why aren't you asking God to heal me immediately? And just like told me how I should have said that prayer better. And I really uh, misinterpreted what her need was in that moment. And she definitely schooled me on what uh, what she needed pretty quickly. Yeah, I I had a uh, an experience similar to that when I was at, uh, you know, where I did my, my clinical ethics fellowship training. And they had a, a very robust clinic, clinical pastoral program. And it was multi-denominational, inter, interdenominational. And they always had a chaplain or two on call for overnight issues that would come up. And you never quite knew who was on call or what their religious background was. And I think they were, they were trained to be able to minister to people of any background. And we were there with a, a, a very large um, family whose, whose loved one was, was passing away. And, and the nurse wisely asked if they would appreciate the chaplain to come by. And the chaplain came up and it just happened to be the chaplain on call was a, a Tibetan Buddhist monk. And he was in his, um, you know, his orange robes. And he was a lovely man, um, very good at what he did. But he walked into this very large family that was very uh, vocal and he walked in as the chaplain and there was a whole lot of that is not the what we were expecting walking <laughs> when we asked for a chaplain to come in so i think the nurse then invited them to bring someone from their own religious community to to help with those types of questions and issues so oh, funny. it was it was entertaining to watch as i knew exactly what was going to happen as soon as i found out which chaplain was on call that night yeah We're pleased today to be joined by Professor Patrick Smith. Dr. Smith is an Associate Research Professor of Theological Ethics and Bioethics, a Senior Fellow at the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University, and Associate Faculty for the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine at Duke University's School of Medicine. Thank you for joining us, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks to both of you for having me. Absolutely. So Patrick, we start all of our interviews off the same way asking, do you consider yourself a bioethicist? Wow. Well, <laughs> in many respects, it depends on what day of the week it is, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, it's interesting conversation that many people are having in the field of bioethics uh, as to, you know, exactly what is it, right? Many people come into the arena of bioethics through various disciplines. And so they bring their disciplinary standards to bear on questions that emerge in the field. Of bioethics, and I would say that I'm no different. Uh, you know, I have interest in you know philosophy and theology, uh, especially how they come together for questions of social ethics. Uh, so, in that sense, I've often seen myself more so as African American religious social philosopher in some ways, interested in questions of bioethics. There have been times uh, where I've had to wear the hat of bioethicist, depending upon the space you know where I was, and I don't mind it so much. Uh, as long as there's a significantly broad understanding of what bioethics actually entails. And if it can create space for the kind of work that I do, then I often don't have too many problems uh, about wearing that label. I will say that your answer there was really unique, and I want to delve into all of that. But uh, in the sense that it was wonderfully vague about whether or not you are a bioethicist, that is basically how all bioethicists are going to answer that question. Is that right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, sort of, and let me explain. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, maybe Monday and Thursday, right? Uh, the second and fourth weeks of the month, I would say yes, right? Okay. <laughs> and it seems to me that it's almost always like a contextual answer, right? So in certain situations, you would be an ethicist or a bioethicist, but like say that you're uh, you know, in a different context than, than the 
the label almost feels a little bit more uncomfortable in some ways. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that just uh, for me is just it identifies the issue that bioethics is this incredibly diverse and multifaceted field of discourse, right, that we enter into it. And so it's hard to, I mean, to answer the question, is it a discipline, right? I mean, so what's the canonical literature? What are the actual uh, disciplinary resources that we need to be a bioethicist, right, when you have so many different ways of coming into the the conversation. So I think that's what makes it often challenging in some ways. So Patrick, given all of that hedging, tell us how you got into this field, discipline, quasi-discipline, however you want to talk about it. How did you get into bioethics? It's interesting. I kind of stumbled into it. And it's, it's kind of a funny story. I was living in the Midwest. I was working at a small theological school there, you know, teaching. And there was a gentleman who was a medical director of a hospice care center. And this uh, medical doctor had interest in studying like ancient religious languages. He was interested in questions of ethics. He was interested in religion and theology, along with his work as pain management specialist, uh, family doctor, as well as a a hospice uh, palliative care physician. And the more we started talking, he at the end of the first time we met, he asked if I would be willing to visit one of their ethics meetings and just be you know, kind of a guest or a community member. They didn't have someone who had training in philosophy at that time. And he thought that it would be a wonderful contribution to their conversation. And so I was really excited about it and said, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I did it. I ended up getting a note from the the director of the ethics department uh, for this particular hospice care center, inviting me to be a part. And so she continued to invite me to come each month and then asked if I would be willing to serve as a community member. And I jumped at the opportunity. And so several months had gone by. I just started finding my voice. I was a little hesitant to speak up because you just don't know the field, or at least that context. And you wanted to make sure that you weren't, uh, as we often say when I was a kid, speaking out of school, right? Or just uh, speaking, not really knowing what you're talking about. Uh, So I just started finding my voice. And all of a sudden, I didn't get the monthly emails about the meetings. I was like, oh my, right? And then two months went by, three months went by. I thought, wow, maybe I said something uh, that was offensive or wrong, so they don't want me uh, to come back. Then I get a letter from the executive director as well as the president asking me if I would be willing to oversee the ethics department. The woman who was overseeing that role, uh, was in that role, she ended up making a transition to another uh, form of employment, so they had a vacancy there. They knew that I was teaching in the evenings. That, w- that was my primary responsibility uh, time slot, and so they asked if I'd be willing to oversee the ethics department during the day. At first, I was thinking, of course not, right? I'm not, you know, prepared or equipped for this. Happened to be talking to a mentor. We were just chatting a little bit. And I was telling him about this just kind of as a throwaway comment. He said, wait, hang on a second. Then he started asking me questions. What do they want you to do? And I explained it. And he said, what kind of training did they, you know, want? And I was like, oh, you know, the stuff that I'm doing, so on and so forth. He said, now, are they going to pay you for this? I was like, "Uh, yeah. And then he asked me the question, now, why aren't you doing it? And my response was, I don't know. Right. Uh, and then I went home and talked uh, to my partner and she was good with it. And so it was just one of those things where, you know, I just decided to do it. And I'm so glad that I did serve that role for eight years. And it was just phenomenal. I grew leaps and bounds. It gave some traction to the work I was doing in philosophy and in religious ethics, religious studies. It just uh, opened up a whole new world for me. Uh, it also impacted my uh, research trajectory uh, in many respects. And it also uh, supplied me with the experience that I needed 
to enter into some other spaces when I moved to New England in the Boston area. I took a job at the Center for Bioethics at Harvard Medical School uh, doing work in their Master of Bioethics program as a core faculty member there. And it was that clinical experience along with the academic training that was, I think, attractive, at least insofar as it was what I was told for that particular role there. So long way, winding way of, of kind of getting there, but I stumbled into it. Uh, but I'm glad that I've fallen into this, this space. It's been quite rewarding so far. Your background in theological ethics and religion, I think, is interesting. Devin comes from that, has that background and that training as well. And not having trained in informal theology or, or religious ethics, it's really interesting to me how those questions and the questions about bioethics kind of overlap in some ways. What, what are some ways in which you've seen that, um, your training in theological ethics and the more clinical or medical ethics? Yeah, I mean, you know, in many ways... Uh religion uh, and theological kinds of questions often are asking questions that are just basic human questions, right? Even though we think about religion, transcendent, you know, and theology, you know, this God talk, right? So on and so forth. Uh, in many respects, if we look close enough, these are just profoundly human questions, right? Uh, questions that we're all wrestling with. You think about the way bioethics developed or at least one trajectory of the historical narrative of its beginnings, uh, you'll see that theologians were asking some very important and profound questions of biomedical technology and really reflecting on what it means to be human and what does it and what do we owe each other when it comes to these kinds of issues and questions. And so for me, it, it's really hard to detach larger, you know, kind of philosophical questions, these kind of religious existential questions in some, so many ways. You know, I come from this you know, African-American intellectual and spiritual tradition. That was the kind of cultural womb, if you will, in which I was nourished. And so these ideas have always gone together. And at the end of the day, you know, as I you know, studied you know, philosophy and looking at the big questions of metaphysics, epistemology and moral philosophy and how this plays itself out in logic. And one of the things that, it, that I was just so struck by is that we're all doing metaphysics, right? We're all doing epistemology. We just have different categories and resources that we're bringing to the table here. Uh, and also, especially for me, when I start off in end of life, you know, care, these kinds of questions, I mean, oh my goodness, it was just so hard to avoid these types of existential and maybe questions that are spiritually laden, for lack of a better way of talking right now, uh, that these resources were always kind of coming, coming to the table. So yeah, I mean, it was just the kind of the water uh, I was swimming in uh, in some ways, but I do think there's a long history of these points yeah. coming together. Yeah, and Patrick, so for those who are listening, tell me what you mean by metaphysics. Tell me what you mean by epistemology and what would they have to do with your work in end-of-life care? Yeah, so so metaphysics is just $25 uh, term in philosophy of questions of being or the nature of things, right? In other words, what makes something what it is and not something else, so to speak. Uh, questions of epistemology, again, it just deals with the th theories of knowledge, right? How do we know what we know? What are we justified in believing? Whose testimonies do we give more weight or credibility? When we think about a lot of what we uh, know about the world or come to understand or even just believe, a lot of it is based on the testimony of others, right? Even when we're doing our own kind of research, we're researching areas and trusting the sources that we're engaging in many ways. And so these questions of whose account, whose report do we believe and why? And of course, you know, ethics, as we reflect on how we do life together, what do we owe each other? Uh, what are the best ways that we uh, order our lives as we bump into each other? 
I, uh, as some would say, with all of our prickly dimensions that sometimes come along with that. And the reason why that becomes important for ethics, I think, is that, you know, there's this phrase that uh, some theorist uh, would say, that every ethos has a mythos. Right? In other words, for every ethic or way of living or being in the world is part of a larger kind of story, a larger story about the world, a larger story about human beings and if human beings matter or not. What are the good goals, if any, or purposes, if any, of life? And what does it mean to do life together uh, in some ways? And so I think that all of those questions become profoundly important when we think about questions of end-of-life care. What does it mean to take seriously our finitude, that we are limited? Uh, and this is something that I would say, for at least to me, that the religious and theological dimension does for me. It reminds me that human beings are finite and that there's also a sense of limitations that we have and also fallibility. All of this informs biomedical technology. What are our goals? What are our responsibilities for each other? Where should we be looking for the limits of what we can do, even as we try to do all that we can, right? It's kind of paradoxical. We continue to stretch and extend ourselves and be creative and innovative, but also with an eye to where the limitations are that are built into this notion of attitude. So hopefully that uh, unpacks and didn't raise more questions, uh, Devin, than tried to answer from your, your pushback there. I really like that quote that every ethos has its own mythos. I think that's really true. Uh, so tell us more about your work uh, in end of life or at the hospice center where you started. What kind of questions or what kind of things were most pressing for your patients and for the providers and, and caregivers that you worked with? What I loved about that space is it, it worked hard to have a more egalitarian approach with regard to the interdisciplinary care team. So the hospice philosophy of care really tried to uh, take a holistic approach with hospice philosophy of care. There was a sense in which it tried to be non-hierarchical, where we recognize that those who are doing spiritual care and social work have a unique vantage point that is extremely important, especially when you take into consideration that a lot of the care that was provided was in the patient's homes. So it's a very different kind of clinical space. Now, the institution with which I worked, it, we had a care center with a number of beds. So we had that kind of classic clinical aspect to it, but also this home care dimension that was extremely important. So uh, so in terms of the interdisciplinary care team, so social workers, those who were giving spiritual care had insights oftentimes that the clinicians just did, or medical clinicians just did not have. And that insight became extremely important in terms of how to care for not only patients, but also the patient family dyad, which we would look at as the, as the unit of care. Right. A lot of things uh, flow from this. Let me just mention a few here. First is that this phrase I use, patient family dyad as unit of care. Oftentimes, our role was to come along and support the family members or those who are close to the patient to provide the primary care. And we served as a supportive role. In that kind of dynamic, it changes right the way we, we think about certain questions in bioethics. So, for example, uh, confidentiality. If there's somebody who has a communicable disease, what does it mean then if you have close ones who are primary caregivers in the home for this patient and the patient does not want the family members to know whether or not they have this kind of communicable disease, right? Well, if it's important for the primary caregivers, if they were in a facility to know that so they could protect themselves, then does that carry over uh, in that space as well? 
What about individuals if you're in someone's home and they have racist attitude and they request not to have individuals of that particular background in their home? Does the institution respect that? Do they try to accommodate their their work uh, in a way to to a, a accommodate that request, especially if it goes against maybe the values of your organization or institution? What do you do when you have drugs in the home that are supposed to care for people, but you have a sense that there may be a loved one or someone close coming into the home taking those medications, right? Either selling them or using them uh, themselves, right? So a whole host of issues that just often emerge in those spaces that put a different gloss on traditional, you know, kind of clinical ethics. But yeah, so that that's just a few of the things that I, I would probably mention. Uh, Tyler, I'm not sure if that gets at your, your question there. No, that's great. So I was trained in a, a big medical center where that idea of hospice was kind of the furthest from our minds. I mean, so so I trained at UCLA where, you know, we're transplanting everything and people are flying their most difficult cases in. And so the community-based the family focused, like in the home type of care model, but also like how ethics kind of de- ethical questions manifest themselves in those types of settings is something that I'm not as familiar with. So yeah, I, re- I really appreciate your, your comments. And, and what's interesting just to, to piggyback on that is that we did have some of those classic questions, right, that emerged in, in uh, you know, kind of clinical cases as we would see them in the care center. And to be honest with you, when I started working on hospital ethics committees, I was actually drawing from some of the insights that I learned from that hospice setting and actually bringing some of those values to bear in a hospice ethics committee to try to expand our moral imaginations right, in terms of what's possible as we're engaging. And I think people can appreciate uh, that these are resources that can help us. I mean, it is interesting to think about how hospice is different for those reasons that you're saying. When I was a chaplain, I did some hospice work as well, some in the home, some in our inpatient unit. And people would always say, I mean, I think they say this about chaplaincy and bioethics in general, that, oh gosh, it just seems so sad. You deal with such difficult things. But in my mind, you might see hospice as sad because everybody in hospice is dying. But everybody in hospice has also on some level accepted that they're dying. That might not be universally true, but it is generally true because you have to accept to go into hospice. So on some level, you've recognized that you are nearing the end of your life. And I think in if you have the luxury of knowing that, some really beautiful things can happen in that space. Some very difficult things can happen as well. But I think it's sort of a gift to know that your time is limited and that you need to make amends and that you need to ask for forgiveness and you need to bring your family around you. And not everybody has that family experience at the end of their lives. They're very difficult situations like you mentioned. But as somebody who works alongside people in those spaces, that can be just really lovely to learn from them and to help them sort of ease into or transition into a kind of different place in their lives right near the end. Was that your experience as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I agree. I mean, they're just wonderful opportunities. I mean, I think the hardest cases that I I think I wasn't quite prepared for initially were those pediatric cases. Uh, when you have infants or children under, you know, five years old enrolled in hospice, right? It's like, wait, what is this? This is not supposed to be this way. But also you can see that through those resources and entering in, so I have this, uh, you know, when I think about compassion, right, the uh, etymological sense of the term suffering with, not so much trying to, I would say, alleviate all of the suffering, right? Because in some ways that's so hard to do 
but how do we enter into the suffering of others and be with them, be present, attend to them in such a way as to mitigate that way? So I just have seen some significant opportunities that emerge through that and also some wonderful humanistic experiences, right? That just helps us redirect uh, the trajectory of our lives uh, in some ways and to be very aware of our limitations and to recognize that tomorrow's not promised for any of us. And that's kind of religious language sounding in some ways, but in that world, I found that it was just so true. Yeah. So a question that we often hear as well is people who are younger, who are just starting out their careers and interested in these types of topics, these types of conversations, where should they look to get to the position where you are now? Like, What kind of pathway would you recommend for somebody who's interested in these issues? Yeah, how do we make the new generation of Patrick Smith? Oh, right. oh. <laughs> well, well, the first thing, if we give them some philosophical training, that maybe they will want to interrogate that assumption, right? That they will want to make the world <laughs> before Patrick Smith, right? But, uh, but no, I mean, I, I, no, that's an important question. It's one that several people have been asking you know, recently, especially as bioethics is becoming more established, as it's becoming more established as a field, there are many people who are interested in this. So my general advice is maybe find, you know, discipline, whether it's in the, the medical sciences, I would say, or increasingly the social sciences, or maybe the humanities, and find some training in one of those areas, and then start crafting your research towards questions of bioethics or something in your community or something that's pressing upon you and then see how those resources can actually inform and give some insight to those questions, but also to not look at it from a kind of a linear top-down approach where here's the academic training, now I come here. There are a whole lot of people, and I think this is very important, very legitimate, who find themselves in particular communities, that there are particular questions that are emerging from those communities and one wants to speak to that or lean in or to be the kind of, you know, maybe intellectual or ethicist that addresses those issues from below and then seek out the kind of training that you need to address those kinds of problems. Uh, and I'm increasingly becoming more convinced that there is something very important to that. But I do appreciate an organic intellectual, right, one who's deeply embedded in a community who, when they're dedicated to the life of the mind, they're asking these questions that are very much pertinent to the community uh, in such a way they're trying to bring resources to bear for that kind of uplift or liberation to whatever moral vision uh, that one has. Yeah, that's great. So Patrick, what these days are you passionate about? What are you sort of bringing to your community um, that you would love to talk about right now? Yeah, just, I mean, very quickly. I mean, as I talked about end of life stuff, who are wrestling in that space of what does it mean to value life at the end of life? The more I did that work and the more I was in conversation, the more I saw firsthand, the more I was prompted to ask, you know, not only what does it mean to value life at the end of life, but what does it mean to value life before the end of life? or the disparities with respect to the way people die, those on the margins of poor people, people along certain racialized lines, the disparities there, recognizing that health outcomes and access to health care was often dependent upon zip code. Right? So what is that all about? And so for me, just being part of kind of African-American tradition that wanted to make sure that we are looking to those on the margins, to those who might be disempowered and disenfranchised, to make sure that whatever gains that particular individuals would have, if the larger community or the masses 
are not experiencing those same benefits, then we still have significant problems that we have to address. And so for me, what I'm really passionate about these days are just asking questions about the world of bioethics and how that connects to questions of social justice. So all these questions of social justice, I think, become really important. And let me just close by saying this, uh, Devin, to your question. There's this parable of the Good Samaritan. Some of them, many of your uh, listeners may have heard of it, right? You know, so he talks about this, this person who had fallen on the Jericho Road and this Good Samaritan comes along and helps this person that's fallen. And we often look at that and say, look, we need to love our neighbors and help people that we, we see in need on the Jericho Road. And I think that's good and that's important, right? But as Martin Luther King Jr. said, at some point we have to stop and ask ourselves, why in the hell is there so much going on on the Jericho Road, right? You know, at some point, let's try to figure out how we can deal with this issue so that uh, we don't have to have so many good Samaritans, right, that we can deal with some of these larger kind of structural issues. So I think that's kind of where my my passions are uh, these days as I'm trying to lean in the best that I can in community uh, with others and listening to those who, who know best. Good. Well, Patrick Smith, both the Good Samaritan and... Uh sweeper of the Jericho Road. We thank you so much for talking with us. It is an absolute pleasure uh, to be here and best wishes to the work uh, that you're doing. And I'm very grateful for this time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. Special thanks to Chris Wright for writing and performing our theme music. For show notes, visit bioethicsforthepeople.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. in my chaplaincy. One night I got a call, it's probably midnight, 2 a.m. And I got dressed really quickly, jumped in my car, I drove to the hospital. And as I was jumping out, of, I was very anxious. This is, I think, one of my first like midnight calls. I jumped out of the car, ripped my skirt up the back. <laughs> I had already driven all the way to the hospital. There was nothing to be done. Ran to my office, safety pinned the back of my skirt together and then walked into the room hoping not to show my backside <laughs> to anybody there. So I had to like move my body strategically around the room. One of the more mortifying moments of my life when I heard that rip when I got up. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, you should have put on a hospital gown backwards to, oh, to yeah. cover yourself that, up. That wouldn't have been strange. <laughs> uh, I, no, I've never ripped my pants walking into a, a consultation before. Uh, Let me tell you, it's an experience. <laughs> I bet it is. <laughs>